Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have hearts that are ready to hear the words of your Son. Lord, I pray that we'd be willing and ready to follow him, to listen to him, to obey him. Amen. Everybody who's been a teacher, I think probably honestly everybody who's been a student, remembers that scenario when one kid does or says something really dumb and calls down a lecture on the whole class. In fact, I think most kids could probably go, hey, that happens in our home all the time. One brother or sister makes a mistake, and suddenly we're all getting corrected. What did I do? Why am I included in this mess? Is Peter who falls in that category for us today. He has the audacity to correct Jesus, and he calls down a lecture on the entire group of disciples. In the best light, his actions make a great deal of sense. He'd actually just confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. He'd been honored and praised by Jesus. Jesus says to him, you're Peter, you're the rock on this rock. I'm going to build my church. He genuinely loved Jesus. He longed for his success. And you can hear him thinking as Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be beaten and persecuted and suffer and die there. And him thinking, this is not strategic. We need to build the base first. We'll have better success taking on the capital once we have a bigger following in Galilee. Jesus, this doesn't make sense. It's coming out of love and a desire for Jesus' success. But Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, you are a rock, but you're a very different sort of rock right now. Not the sort that I build churches on, but the sort that people trip over when they're trying to do God's will. Peter, you're in my way. You're thinking like a person not like God. Get behind me. Quit trying to lead this train. You don't know where we're going. The path of the Messiah, he says, has got to go through suffering and death. And then the part that's the lecture for the entire group, the part that probably was even harder to hear, was Jesus' words that said, and if you want any part of me, that's got to be your path too. The path of suffering and death is mine, and it's yours if you want to follow the Messiah. Peter in Matthew represents the typical disciple. John tells us more about what the others thought and said. We get something of Thomas's personality in John's gospel. I feel a lot of sympathy for him. I feel like him. But in Matthew's gospel, he really just lets Peter do all the talking. He doesn't record the things that the other disciples said and thought nearly as much. Peter represents the typical disciple with all the typical disciples' successes and failures. At his best, we can see a bit of ourselves in Peter. And at his worst, we can see a bit of ourselves in Peter. He represents us when he steps out boldly in faith. And he represents us when his faith crashes seconds later. He represents all of us. And in this moment, I think that we are supposed to see ourselves in Peter because we also have Peter's tendency to try to get away from the cross, 
to try to pick another path other than the one of the cross. I'm going to call this tendency triumphalism. This triumphalism, the idea that we want triumph rather than the cross. Luther calls it the theology of glory rather than the theology of cross. The idea that we want things to work out for ourselves. We don't want the path of pain and suffering that is the cross. It's this tendency we have. It's basically our success mindset. We all want success. We all want the things that make sense to be noticed, to get the accolades, to be in control. No one has ever said, at least not in seriousness, I hope my college basketball team loses every game this year in the name of Jesus. We want success. No one has ever said, I hope that my child is like middle of the pack or towards the back when it comes to their GPA. No one says these things. Triumphalism, a success mindset, is built into all of us. No one says, I hope, honestly, today I get overlooked and ignored. It just is, it, it's not the way we think. We're all affected by this triumphalism, this desire for success or victory. This is what I mean when I say Peter represents all of us here is that all of us share his tendency to say, that path that includes so much pain and hardship and suffering, I don't like that path. I want a path that actually includes a lot more victory, a lot more people noticing me and people applauding me. The issue, though, is that we take this triumphalism, this sense that success in the way that we understand it matters to God, we take that attitude and we import it into the spiritual life. This is why Paul says that the cross is foolishness to the world. It doesn't make any sense from the world's perspective. The path of defeat rather than victory does not look like anything but folly in the eyes of the world. In God's economy, all values are turned upside down. This is actually, as much as anything, the thing that we need to hear in this passage. In God's economy, the values of all things are flipped on their head. The ordinary successes of life, football teams winning, high GPAs, good salaries, good looks, all of these things that comprise our vision of success, no matter how well-meaning or how well-intentioned they are, those things honestly mean very little in the kingdom of God. They mean very little to God. Our desire for success doesn't line up with the sort of things that he values. You remember the story where David is chosen as king and Samuel's there and he's looking for the one to anoint and the boys are paraded in front of him, one handsome big man after another, powerful, Soldiers in the army of Saul. And God's word, not this one. Not this one. Not this one. And he says to Samuel, man looks at the outside appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. The Lord very simply does not need success in the eyes of the world for us to be something that matters in the kingdom of God. As I was thinking about this, I kept thinking about Two people, St. Francis and Mother Teresa, two people who very purposely threw away everything that the world understood as success. 
And yet the legacy of those two people is greater than anybody who's ever sought success or power or influence. The legacy, the ripple effect through the generations of people transformed by their self-sacrifice, their willingness to go into the lowest places and to take the hardest roads. Success in the world standpoint, very simply, doesn't matter to God. He cares so much more that our hearts are faithful in whatever circumstances we're in than that we get the circumstances we want. He cares about our heart. He cares about the fact that we love him, that we trust him. But it's not just that success in the way that the world views it doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. He can use it, by the way. Queen Esther is an example of him elevating someone to power to use it, but he doesn't need it. It's not just, though, that it doesn't really matter that God can work either way. The real issue, and this is what we see with Peter, is that when we import that into the spiritual world, when we import that vision of what it means to matter, to be successful, to be victorious, to count for something, when we import the world's vision of that into the spiritual life, when we try, in other words, to solve the fallenness of the world, the problems of sin with the world's way of thinking, with the world's way of achieving, with the world's way of working, when we try to do that, no matter how spiritual, how well-meaning, how well-intentioned we are, how justifiable it is, we're actually working against God. That's not the path that he chose. He didn't choose the path of overcoming fallenness and our sin with victory in the way that the world understands it. Jesus Christ chose the path of the cross, the path of suffering and rejection, not triumph. And he calls us into that exact same sort of path. We have to be careful here because it's not that God delights in suffering or in pain. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus endured the cross. He didn't revel in it and enjoy it. You look at Gethsemane and you see what it cost, the agony and the pain. God does not delight in suffering and pain. But the reality is that humanity has unleashed suffering and pain and agony on the world. Through our sin, through our rebellion against God, through our attempt to be our own God, humanity has unleashed suffering and pain on the world. And God was not content to leave us to suffer alone in it. He saw that the way out, the way to save our lives, was for God to actually enter himself into our suffering. For God himself to take that suffering into himself, to be crushed by it, to be ground down and destroyed by it, for the full weight of it to fall on his shoulders, the weight of all that you and I have done, the weight of all that the world has done. This is what God saw. And because he was not content for us to continue in that pain and suffering, this was the path that he chose. Our triumphalist methods of overcoming it and dealing with it simply do not work. How many times do we try to solve the problems of the world as a human race and only perpetuate those exact same problems? Our methods of dealing with fallenness and brokenness and sin and suffering very simply do not work. Only God's submitting to it. 
Only God taking the full weight of it on his shoulders. Only God drinking it into himself and enduring it. This is the only way that the suffering of the world could be dealt with. He is the only one big enough to hold it, and he holds it by letting it crush him. This is why Jesus was dead set on going to the cross. And this is why Peter's methods that look more successful in the world's eyes had to be thrown away as hindrances to the path of God. It's funny how we can know something but miss its weight. The way out of suffering is not our version of victory. And I think we all know that. I think that we all know that the victory over suffering is in Jesus Christ's willingness to be crushed by it for us. I mean, I think we all could actually realize that our methods of dealing with things that look for some other quicker, cheaper victory other than that aren't going to work in the end. But we still fall into this pattern of Peter, of looking for some other way of dealing with the things that are broken and hard in the world rather than the path of the cross. It's like we have to relearn this nearly every day. Sometimes we are just like Peter, pushing this truth away, keeping it at a, di a, di a distance, actively trying to actually be as far as we can from the cross. Jesus on his path going down the route of suffering is frightening because he calls us and he says, follow me here. Can you imagine a church that actually said we want to join Jesus on this path of suffering for the salvation of the world rather than have anything that the world would regard as success? Can you imagine a church that said we don't care how we're seen by the people around us. We don't care whether people think we have our act together or doing it well. We simply want to follow Jesus on the path of suffering for those who are hurting. Can you imagine the individual Christian who let that dominate their thinking? That it doesn't matter to me what people think of me. It doesn't matter if I'm regarded as having it all together or getting it all right or doing it all right. I'm just going to follow Jesus on the path of suffering for the sake of others. It's a terrifying path, and it's one that, like Peter, we all try to avoid as much as we can. And yet the disciples of Jesus are called down that path. It's not like an optional extra for the super disciple. It's not like grade B or C as we move down the path. Jesus actually looks at them and he said, if anyone would follow me, if anyone. In other words, it's the only path for the disciple of Christ. The only path is to see the suffering of the world and to enter into it in the name of Jesus. That's the path that all of us are called to. We're called down that path because it's only in that place where we have no strength or power where we actually learn to live by grace. That's the message of 2 Corinthians 12, that only when we are overcome by something stronger than ourselves and are at the end of our strength do we actually learn that God's grace and power would show up in our life? We're called down that path because the suffering that we enter into in the name of Jesus is taken into Christ's sufferings and becomes a part of how he redeems the world. This should blow us away. That we're called down that path because our sufferings become a part of Christ's 
In Colossians 1.24, Paul says that I do my part, filling up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. The total sufferings of Christ include everything that every one of us will encounter. And those things are taken into the sufferings of Christ and used by Christ for the redemption of the world. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says to the Corinthians, that famous passage about the jars of clay, he says, death is at work in us and life in you. In other words, all the hardship that he was experiencing was rebounding to their life in the economy of God. We're called down that path because only in that place is there actually life. This is the message of this gospel lesson where Jesus says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you give it away for my sake, you will save it. It's the same message we see in Philippians 3 where Paul says, everything is lost that I might know Christ. And he says, in that knowing Christ, he says that I might be conformed to his sufferings, that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. This realization that life comes on the other side of the cross. The resurrection follows the grave. We're called down that path because only there do we find life. And ultimately, we're called down that path very simply because it's where Jesus is. We cannot be with him if we refuse to go where he is. And where he goes is to the bottom of suffering for others. The attempt to escape that cross, that path, is an attempt to preserve our own life. And it means, in the end, fleeing from the presence of Jesus. It means, in the end, losing the very life that he would offer. It means, in the end, forfeiting the places where he would work his grace and his power in us. It means, in the end, forfeiting those places where he would use our very suffering to redeem those around us. And yet we try to escape it all of the time because it doesn't make sense to the world. It looks like foolishness because it looks painful, because it looks like how in the world could you overcome darkness with death and suffering? And yet it's the way of Christ. Our ways of victory and power don't make any sense in the kingdom of God. How do we do this? How do we seek the path of the cross? It needs to be said in sort of very blunt and bold fashion that we seek the path of the cross by not looking for suffering. The early church wrestled with this because they took very seriously this idea that this is the path of the disciple, and suddenly they have people going out and looking for martyrdom on purpose. And the early church says, no, that's not how you seek it. In fact, you're supposed to pray for healing for each other and pray for healing for yourself. We're not masochists. We don't actually go look for things that are painful on purpose. We're supposed to work for healing and deliverance and freedom and goodness in the lives of the people around us. But when crosses are given to us to carry, when crosses are given to us to carry, the things that God doesn't take away as we pray, as we work, when crosses are given to us to carry, we need to recognize them for what they are. They're not threats. It's like it dawns on you all of a sudden, oh wait, this isn't actually a threat to life. This thing that looks so painful is not a threat to life. In fact, it may be the very place where Jesus is. Because that's where he goes, to the bottom, for other people. It may may be the very place where he's going to show me his power and his grace and his life. 
It may be the very place where he actually uses my life to bring about the redemption of someone else. We don't seek these places, but when they come, we realize that they are not threats because Jesus is already there. In a very practical sense, the basic way that we follow our Lord in this is self-denial. This is what Jesus says in this passage, that if you would come after me, deny yourself, take your cross, and follow me. The basic way we engage in this is self-denial, because triumphalism, the desire for success, is all about self-promotion. It's all about self-fulfillment. It's all about getting our way, being noticed and applauded, those things that are meaningless in the kingdom of God. And denying ourselves means, like Peter, realizing that even our best intentions, even our wisest thoughts, are oftentimes just getting in the way of Jesus. Denying ourselves is more than just letting go of our sinful habits. Of course, it includes that. Denying ourselves is recognizing that our best laid plans are likely shooting off the path of Jesus. Denying ourselves means coming to terms with the fact that we are self-focused through and through, and that the desire to be our own master, the desire to our lives to be at the center of our own little story, shoots through all of the things we do. Even our great acts of service, if we're honest, even our great acts of service are shot through with the need to be applauded, the need to be in control, the need to be the true servant, the martyr. Even our great acts of service are an attempt, in other words, at triumphalism, at victory, at victory in the way that the world understands. All of that struggle that we go through, all that jockeying to have ourselves in that supreme position in our lives. And Jesus' command is simple and clean. Drop the whole thing. Drop the whole thing. Drop your sense that you need to have life figured out. Drop your need to manage, control, or understand. Drop your need to be at the center, to be noticed. Drop all of the ways that you seek to escape your pain. Drop all the ways that you try to avoid the difficult things that I send you into. And he says, pick up instead whatever cross I give you. Follow where I go. Follow where I lead. I don't know about y'all, but it may sound terrifying. We spend years perfecting ourselves at the center of our own little lives. True self-denial, where we actually let go of ourself as master of our life, is terrifying because we spend years following our own lead, trusting our own intuitions more than anybody else's, thinking that we're right in all of our circumstances, developing ways to live according to our own understanding. We spend years practicing that. Like Peter, we're not even afraid to say, God, I've got a great plan for my life. Why don't you follow mine? Follow me here. We're so good at it. And it may be terrifying to consider this idea of relinquishing all of it. But behind this call from Jesus is actually an offer of grace. The king stands and calls to each of us. He invites us into his suffering not because he wants us to suffer, but because this is where he is and this is where life is. He calls us into that because he actually wants to give us life. He knows that all of the ways that we would deal with the brokenness and fallenness of our own lives will only perpetuate it. 
I think most of us actually know that in some deep sense. That the way that we try to solve the issues of our lives only perpetuate the brokenness. And Jesus says, come to me and let me show you my way of dealing with those things. Let me give you life. He offers us the thing that we cannot secure for ourselves in any other place. Our deepest need, life itself, life in his presence, life that cannot be quenched, that cannot be crushed, that cannot be destroyed. He offers us these things, and yet we have to walk through darkness and faith to get there. But he says, trust me, come to this place. Amen.